1: Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Some individual shares and their prices are mentioned in today's podcast. Under no circumstances should you think that these represent investment recommendations. For that, you need to seek independent advice from somebody who is authorized to do so. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this latest and very special edition of The Other Hand. Jim is sunning himself on a beach somewhere, I've no idea where actually, but he'll be back next week. So this week I have a very special guest on the pod, an old friend of mine actually from many years ago, an Irishman called Gary McCarthy. Gary has 30 years experience in financial markets. He's an experienced investor, analyst, senior executive running businesses in financial services firms and he's currently involved in a lot of very interesting projects across a range of activities in financial services. I bumped into Gary only the other week when he asked me to sit in on a panel discussion at the Irish Management Institute up in Sandyford, an early morning thing that was all about artificial intelligence, another one of Gary's areas of expertise. And I have to say it was the only time in my entire career where some the number of people who turned up was greater than the number of people who actually accepted the invitation. It was standing room only. I think that speaks to the huge degree of interest that there is in artificial intelligence. And AI is but one of the subjects I'm going to talk to Gary about today. But before we launch into our chat, perhaps, Gary, you'd like to Elaborate a little on those few words about your good self. Thanks, Chris. It's been a long time in
2: the markets. <laughs> we first met each other very early in, in in the career stages. In fact, you gave me my first job in the in the investment world in London. I think the part of history is yes, um, a sort of a, a thirty years in financial markets, twenty five years than probably in an investment analysis across London, Hong Kong, Dublin. In latter years, very interested in the sort of the analytics, the data side of things, and sort of up to the current day, my time is split really across sort of looking at risk, in, uh, in particular for a, a fintech uh, investment platform involved in crowdfunding called Spark Crowdfunding. So do a lot of work on risk there, assessing. Suppose investment opportunities and writing up uh, the analyses of of those of those businesses trying to to raise money in the startup market. And then you know the balance of my 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 work is is, is really on the content side, uh, writing about clean tech. And um, for Silverback, another one of my I suppose my clients, employers, they they are heavily involved in in the construction mission critical projects in in Northern Europe, which is very topical at the moment. And then I suppose the final bit is the is the new tech stuff. It's the AI. It's the Dare I say it's a little bit out of out of favor at the moment, but the sort of the Web three, uh, metaverse stuff—it's still you know there's a lot going on,
1: particularly on the blockchain side of things. So
2: lots going on as always, Chris. Um, as confused as
1: ever. Yes, indeed.
2: And looking forward to a, a good chat.
1: Yes. I mean, you mentioned that I gave you your first job in the city of London after you'd been in Asia for a few years. You returned the favor earlier on this century when you hired me into a firm uh, that had recently established a Dublin office of a much bigger London. Uh, and other centre locations. So, thank you for that, Gary. You you uh, changed the path of my career, I must say, in all sorts of interesting ways with that with that decision. So, to today's agenda, there's lots going on in economics, in finance, and in markets. One of the, the this is almost by way of an aside. Myself and Jim have talked many times about the plummeting gas price now for the last nine months or so. Uh, it coming all the way back from the peaks that it reached during the panic of last August September, and every day that we've mentioned it, every pod that we've mentioned it, it's down another few percentage points. Well, today is different because at one point today, and the day ain't over, uh, the natural European natural gas market for the front what what we call the front month delivery, which is delivery of gas in July, um, was up forty percent. That's four zero. Haven't seen those kinds of moves since the invasion uh, prompted all of the shenanigans in gas markets back last year. It's come off that 40% a bit. It's still up on the day, but it's extremely volatile. And uh, it's been going up, actually, not just today, but for a few days now, for at least a week, as uh, all sorts of things are going on. I think LNG, liquid natural gas cargoes, which had flooded the European market in late spring early summer are now heading to Asia, is the, is the chatter in, in gas markets because of that fall in price, that there were better prices to be had in Asia. The heat wave that many parts of Europe is experiencing uh, has led to fears that gas demand would spike because of electricity needs for air conditioning. But overall, I think that it reveals that this fact that we've got so much volatility today and the price has been going up, um, that the market remains quite fragile and that any sense that we are out of the woods for next winter needs to be treated with a pinch of salt. The catalyst for the big spike in all prices today was a curious decision by the Dutch government, which we haven't got time to go into the ins and outs of today, but the the huge North Sea gas field called Groningen, um, which contains enough gas apparently to replace all of the lost Russian gas supplies, hasn't been producing an awful lot of gas recently because the Dutch have been running it down um, because of complaints about earthquakes and tremors affecting housing near the field in Holland. Um, the Dutch have apparently, according to leaked reports today, decided to shut this field down completely. So gas that Europe could have used to completely save itself from the Russian gas threat, has not, the taps have been turned off. As I say, it's a curious decision, Not one I would have made. I think that an economist would say you should compensate the landowners and the householders with some cash and give Europe the rest of its gas. But it's a decision for the Dutch. So that that's me. I I wanted Gary to start by talking a little bit about the uh, broader financial markets, not just the gas market. One of the extraordinary things that's going on at the moment is that we have, in the United States at least, if not elsewhere, but certainly elsewhere in places like Japan, very strong equity markets, despite the fact that interest rates are still going up pretty much everywhere. The Fed did announce something interesting last night, and I want to talk about that. Europe's put its interest rates up today, and there are more interest rate hikes to come, probably in Europe and definitely in the UK. In that kind of environment, we would have expected... Uh, asset prices, equity markets in particular, to behave badly. They haven't. They've been a little bit volatile, but we have an extraordinary US equity market, for example, where all of the gains in the S&P 500, an index of 500 stocks, are accounted for by seven companies. But Gary... Tell me your thoughts on the current financial nexus.
2: Well, different regions have different are moving at a different pace in terms of interest rate hikes, but certainly the trajectory is still upwards. My my initial thoughts are, you know, it it changes from day to day. There's there's a lot of confusion from, from a personal perspective. The one thing I, I would, you know, in an inflationary world, there is always a tendency to think back to the last great example was the nineteen seventies. You know, I suppose there are central bank governors across the world a bit confused at the moment that they have been raising rates consistently for you know over a year, and jobs markets are as robust as they've they've been. Now you've heard it many times before. Jobs markets are are almost backward looking. They're a laggard. They don't tell you what's happening today, but also it's the, the the bit that you mentioned. The asset prices are extraordinarily robust, really uh, on on overall, um, and so you you know just beg the question: what's different this time? What's happening? I mean, my, my first response is that obviously something like the Ukraine is a supply shock, uh, no different to the nineteen seventies. So you know, trying to raise interest rate um, rates to to sort of cut off demand when it's a supply issue is 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 is, is a kind of a, a uh, slightly confused approach, but you know what we are seeing is just this steady, what I call strong bid in in financial in financial markets for for assets. There are three things that probably strike me in terms of why is it different this time. One is this isn't the nineteen seventies or even the nineteen early nineteen eighties when U.S. interest rates reached sort of fifteen percent. It's it's a very um, modern. I would say almost digital economy in, in many many of the advanced economies, um, and in that sense, it, they're asset light businesses. You know, they move very quickly. It's not like they're setting down huge plants, huge pieces of machinery. Um, you know, that are, become sunk costs when 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 economic cycles uh, shift. It's also a, a, a world economy that's been through some you know an extraordinary um, buffeting during COVID. Lots of lessons were learned there, in particular that if you let go of people. Um, it's very hard to get them back, so I think the muscle memory around that is is very strong at the moment. I think companies are reluctant, albeit in the tech world, you're seeing obviously um, fairly significant job losses. But I think there is this suggestion that people don't want to be stuck like that, like um, put the post COVID period. And I think this it's this muscle memory that's playing through in in other ways, just in terms of you know. <laughs> you and i chris would be fully aware that a lot of investment decisions these days have almost been sort of delegated to machines and they're watching very carefully for sentiment uh, pricing signals but you know they also look at very very long run um, historical uh, pricing data and and they will know that you know when there's been a, a crisis or when markets dipped there's there's always something coming in to to buy it afterwards and they have been very expensive mistakes to be out of the market in you know early 2003 early 2009. So the, I, it, it feels like there's, there's a constant um, movement of capital into the markets. And I think the other thing that we've got to remember, it's a much older world than, than or sorry, and uh, 1970. We've got 10,000 retirees a day in the United States that want to put money to work. And I think that's the other thing that's changed in, sort of a, in the modern um, economy, is that the, the pool of savers, it's an older population, versus the pool of assets that you can invest in. Uh, actually that that ratio has 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 has, um has reversed or has changed dramatically and so there is this you know huge wall of money that is always looking for opportunities and the thing i would sort of say in the the current environment particularly in the u.s you know you could effectively by buying some mortgage-backed securities in the u.s earn yourself seven eight percent so you could effectively lend to house buyers um by buying mortgage-backed securities and get paid 7 or 8%. I mean, there's many a hedge fund out there I know that would bank that straight away and charge quite good fees on it.
1: Gary, you're causing me to shiver here because wasn't buying mortgage-backed securities the thing that led us into so much trouble before in 2006, thousand and six, seven, and eight? Gary, let me be a bit of a dinosaur. And you're talking about the US equity market generally being very robust. Uh, every time it goes down, it goes back up further than it was before. But the dinosaur in me can't help look at a couple of numbers. You're going to tell me that these sorts of numbers these days are so passé that we shouldn't be even mentioning them in polite company. But do you remember something called a P ratio that you and I used to look at occasionally? Does anybody look at those anymore? Not sure that they do. But anyway, the, the big seven companies in the United States are Tesla, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, Amazon and in, Nvidia and Apple, for instance, now has a market capitalization, a value worth more than the entire FTSE 100 index in the UK. It it has a value bigger than the Russell 2000 index of smaller companies in the United States. It is truly a behemoth. But those seven companies, the old-fashioned price-to-earnings ratio, for those of you that aren't in markets, this is a measure of value that we try to use, um, or we used to anyway, uh, to say whether a company was expensive, cheap, or fair value, but those seven stocks are on a P ratio in aggregate of just over 30 times earnings, one year's earnings. The other 493 companies in the S&P 500 are on a P ratio of about 17, so nearly half of a valuation metric. Do you think that that's such an extreme valuation story that we need to pay attention to it? Or am I just a dinosaur? And more generally, Gary, I'll put you on the spot. Is this another dot-com bubble?
2: you know, you mentioned seven stocks that have an average uh, price earnings ratio of 30 times. Two or three of them might grow into that um, assessment of their future opportunity. It's very likely three or four won't. I think I was slightly surprised there to hear you say that I'm, I thought it would be a little bit lower that the US, the remaining 493 stocks are still on a price earnings multiple of 17 times. That's that That still looks fairly full in what, are still quite challenging earnings, uh, environments, but the size of the opportunity is, is, is enormous. I mean, you mentioned $3 trillion for, 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 you know, evaluation for Apple. You know, I've seen figures out there for the opportunity in AI, um, of being, you know, $14 trillion by, by 20, 2030. They're big numbers. That's, um,
1: yeah, they, those are huge numbers. And, uh, I suppose one of the answers I would give to my own question about the dot-com bubble is that that there are some companies out there, you've just mentioned perhaps the most prominent, but there are a few others that, unlike back then, have both real earnings as opposed to zero earnings back then. In fact, cash flow burned back then. There were an awful lot of companies uh, losing money, not just not making money, and with this opportunity That's an interesting segue or a good segue into AI, Gary, because you might recall that that panel discussion, which you kindly hosted and invited me to speak at, the interest in AI is extraordinary. And one of the questions that I was dreading at that uh, seminar breakfast meeting was, what should I invest in to take advantage of AI? And you mentioned that Apple has an opportunity in AI. The one that I mentioned on the day was Microsoft. That's also doing very, very well. As I'm sure, as I'm sure you know, do you think we know who is going to make all the money in AI, and do you think that the opportunity is real or imaginary?
2: We don't know. I mean, I think it's a very uh, uncertain future. I, I think one of the things that I'm warming to, though, is that some of the bigger players have a have a fantastic opportunity because they already have such a huge installed base of users, and that by adding sort of AI tools, they can do very well. But to your sort of your your secondary question around. You know, the dangers of it all being very excited and giddy and there's a real danger of misallocating huge amounts of capital and um, my kind of one of my two favorite anecdotes of the week or two data points um, was the, the the news yesterday that a french ai company called mistral now in fairness the the four founders all come from extremely strong backgrounds and um, but they have managed to raise 115 million dollars and they have set themselves up only four weeks ago, and that was done using a PowerPoint presentation. No product, no customers, no earnings. A PowerPoint. An attributed... I mean,
1: hey, are we doing the wrong thing in this podcast? Should we shouldn't be not putting together. <laughs> I didn't think I didn't think people used PowerPoint anymore.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it's it's you know that I'm I'm beginning to get you know echoes of you asked the, the, the .dot com question that 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 that's, that strikes me as giddy. Um, but then to sort of counteract that, my my second favourite anecdote of the, of the week was I I spent a little bit of time in the UK at, at the weekend with lots of different people from different backgrounds, finance, legal, at um, the arts. And um, but one one dad was telling me that the son, their son was, was was going to be working in the city for the summer after doing his A levels, and it was a, a friend that had provided the opportunity to do the internship. But that the friend also said that by the way, Billy needs to do a course in chat gpt as soon as possible we won't let him into the office until he's done it um, because we are using it so heavily at the moment that he'd be completely lost so as wow. I was telling the story to a few others, as I was swimming in the waters with my whalers in the 40 foot this morning, I was saying, you know, gone are the days when we were told to come in and just learn how to use the copier or the fax machine.
1: Do I take it from this, Gary, that you are an AI optimist? Um, I certainly am. I'm a self-declared one um, on this pod and in other forums like the one we mentioned earlier on. Uh, I do think that it has the potential to be incredible, big and to actually cure a lot of our problems and i notice for example that one ai system not a chatbot but ai does i should stress take many forms ai has just discovered potentially the first serious new antibiotic that we have come across in over a decade and countering microbacterial resistance to antibiotics is a huge huge deal for humanity and to have come up with potentially a new one is a is a major story, and there are similar stories like this all around. There are different ways in the sciences in medical sciences, and for as an economist, I think the benefits to productivity potentially are going to be massive. So I am an AI optimist um, I tend to be very dismissive actually all of all about all of this existential stuff about Terminator robots destroying humanity. I think we 're more than capable of doing that ourselves without the help of AI. We are the biggest risk to humanity, rather than AI. And I see AI much, much more as opportunity rather than threat.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in the same camp, mainly be around the sort of the empowerment opportunity for for every individual on the planet. I was very struck by the founder of the Khan Academy getting very excited by AI, saying, "Can you imagine, not only every child on the planet having their own tutor as such, but also the tutor having an assistant?" And I think that's the. I think that's a very subtle but key point i think those that are in the sort of the knowledge economy can can be better we can all be better i mean you and i already use probably using stuff with ai that that helps us do inform people better so i'm i'm very much an optimist around you know how it can assist and um, not just productivity is maybe a little bit narrow but just the, the world and, and from research to education you know I'm, I'm 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 a big believer
1: you were in the uk at the weekend gary and um, I don't know whether you listened to a podcast I did a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago now, actually, with a leading public intellectual in the United States called Noah Smith. You've probably come across him oh, yes. and his writings. Yep. And we had a very serious conversation, not unlike this one, about things tech, things AI, things US economy, things US interest rates. We were both very po-faced and earnest in all of our discussions about those things. And then I asked him about the UK and his views about the political, economic situation there. And I'm afraid to tell you, Gary, he just burst out laughing and said, I can't take anything to do with the UK these days seriously. They need to go away for a decade and rethink just what it is that they're about. Um, You were in London over the weekend. What was the mood? What what do you take from your regular trips to London? I know you've written recently about potentially a bit of a renaissance going on in the city of London, the financial district. So, what do you think is going on there? What interests you the most about the UK?
2: Yeah, and I, well, I think where I was was uh, in the in the lovely um, Kent um, uh, region. Um, I, I would say I was exposed to a you know a, a sort of a, a south of England crew of people. I, I suppose I was very struck by the complete absence of reference to Brexit or Boris or just institutional decay, which I think there's multiple pieces of evidence a, a, around that and. But at the same time, I was taking in a, a sort of an environment, uh, financial and domestic conditions for a lot of these people. Nothing's, nothing's really changed yet. You mentioned about, you know, a laughter with Noah Smith and, and, and the UK and Basket case. I mean, I think the true barometer and I think what, you know, what if I was if I was to upset people um, at that particular gathering would be. It's the credibility issue that will ultimately affect everybody in in the UK. Is is the is and you you wrote about it this week. Is is the interest rate market, the bond market, saying there's an issue here, and and I think that's. I just feel that there's a failure to grasp that the international credibility does have financial impact ultimately on everybody, whether you own your house outright or whether you have a mortgage. The other thing I would say is that I was talking to somebody last week who did a quick sort of reconnaissance trip um, looking at quite a well-known retailer here in Ireland uh, looking at retail opportunities in England in secondary cities. So he was spending the majority of his time in the north and he was just staggered at how I suppose poverty-stricken a lot of the places, just the decay. Um, so it it you know it's very much a, a tale of 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 two countries, I would say, the haves and the have-nots. But the gap is extraordinary. But I'm not entirely sure that the top end will escape um the 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 the, the longer term consequences of of institutional decay and credibility loss.
1: Absolutely, I'm glad that I've got a fellow traveller because Jim normally takes me to task on my. Pessimism about the UK and tries to argue the other side of that one. But I do think that as the data is coming in, and in particular as you say, what I wrote about this week, the impending, um, what I might call a mortgage bomb, as all of these fixed-rate mortgages roll into a much higher interest rate environment, is going to be a very real shock for an awful lot of people. And now there could be a hail Mary answer. there. Sorry, Chris, just to interrupt,
2: but you know, I, I did. I'm more. I'm more... I'm a huge fan of London. Love London. I, I, I suppose that the part of England that you know I spent most of the time. There's there's a huge amount of creativity, invention, leader. There's there's a lot there. It's a it's it's a melting pot of lots of of nationalities, skill sets. I wouldn't write anybody off or particular cities off, and maybe great cities are built to, to last nearly forever. But I would worry about the hinterland. But but it's it, it, you know I think it's a it's a, it's a great starting point for let's call it UK two. Um, that they are still attracting the lion's share of all fintech investment globally. I mean, they are the number one London, fintech. London
1: is, Gary, not, yeah. not the UK. Not the UK, London. But I don't I think say the yourself, UK it is, is London a, anymore.
2: <laughs> but it is It is a bit like, you know, there are certain parts of the United States that, are, you know, if we were to be, you know, slightly regional about it, that are accounting for, you know, is it 25% of the S&P 500's market value at the moment? So little places or smaller regional bases can have huge national and
1: international impact, if you get it right. Let's move the discussion on, and I'm conscious of time. We don't uh, have an awful lot left. Obviously, I don't live in Ireland anymore. I did live in Ireland for 30 years. I still retain a huge amount of affection and interest for the place, and Jim normally tells me what's going on there. One of the things that I've noticed today is a new opinion poll published by the Irish Times, in which Fine Gael's support has fallen to multi-year lows. The Taoiseach's popularity rating has done something similar. Interestingly, Sinn Féin's support has dropped by three points or so, so that the opposition and one of the coalition parties have become less popular. Fianna Fáil have gone up, and the independents and Social Democrats have gone up a bit. So it's an interesting political mix to, to see that happening, And that, of course, feeds into this rather early debate that you're having in Ireland about the budget and whether or not you should spend or save the largesse that you get from mostly those corporations that I listed out earlier on. It it is remarkable when you look
2: at the sort of the economic statistics for for the country and who has been in power unlike the Tories for thirteen years in the uk through a, a you know a, a remarkably robust um, strong economic performance it is incredible how unpopular i suppose or how badly the the governing parties are doing in the polls as always you might find it in the United States or in the uk and i would I would uh, argue the U.S. and Ireland are quite similar at the moment in that you know it, bad news seems to to work particularly powerfully with 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 um with with the electorate or with the, the certainly the polling. I am a li- I'm, I suppose as somebody that's involved in the messaging business as you are, Chris, as well. I'm, I'm I'm staggered by how badly the government puts forward its case. Similarly, in the United States, I think Biden, if if he was written up by a different messaging team, could be one of the great United States Presidents. You know, the scale of of, of change that is going on in the US at, at, at different economic levels is, is, is extraordinary. And similarly in, in Ireland, it has been very good, but it's been done, you know, I, I think Google used the, their, their mantra at the moment is bold, but responsible. I think the Irish government is probably not bold enough, but it is very responsible. I don't think we can be overly reliant on corporate tax take forever. Um, I think it's a very changeable uh, scenario. Um, But I think also we get a lot of, I think we talked about credibility in the UK. I think there's a lot of international credibility that attaches to Ireland in that sort of conservatism. But, you know, you asked the question about the budget and how to spend it or who to spend it. I mean, the other thing that I have to be equally critical about for government is, you know, when you spend it, spend it properly. I mean, we don't do planning well for housing or for big projects my silverback role you know we we are involved in huge mission critical uh, projects in other countries but we have a we have a children's hospital still to be built that started out as a sort of five or six hundred million dollar project it's now two and a half billion and counting you know potholes in the road here so frustrating so we aren't good planners and hence we end up being bad spenders so that's that that is something that you know i would say messaging and spend quality um, or project management are huge must do better (laughs) Areas for for government certainly messaging as to how you're going to do better, but it's it's a, it's worrying that the, the the genuine problems in housing and health care don't seem to be you know um, being addressed or given the, the you know the, the solutions aren't moving fast enough.
1: One of the just a, asides, um, something I was reading today, you mentioned healthcare, and I think that the although organisationally, of course, the NHS is different to how the HSE is structured, and but essentially um you do have a public sector health provision in both Britain and Ireland one of the urban myths that we have in the UK um and I was surprised by this Karen and I'd be interested to know if you're surprised you you know that we you've lived in London so you know that people here moan about the cost and quantity of uh, health administration and healthcare management in the UK everybody says there are too many managers there's too much money spent on administration in healthcare. You've heard that refrain, I guess. Did you know that the UK, uh, compared to the OECD average, spends 50% of its health budget less, half as much as the average administrative budget of the OECD area as a whole? The One of the many things wrong with the NHS is that they don't have enough administrators. It's not that they've got too many. And I suspect something similar is true in Ireland, and that the root and branch reform of the health system requires, first of all, us to get a grip on the statistics and the data and the knowledge about where we are at, rather than always dealing with these urban myths. There's still a significant number of healthcare trusts, a newfangled set up in the NHS here, that have paper records, Gary. Can you believe that? I'm surprised by that. (laughs) Just just extraordinary. Anyway, um, we're running out of time. um, So it just falls to me to say thanks so much for an absolutely fascinating discussion. Will you come on again sometime, please? Of course, not a problem. Much enjoyed it. That would that would be great. Thank you very much, Gary McCarthy. Tech, finance, all sorts of different roles. If you want his contact details, please get in touch. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. Hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com, or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.
0: Maman